Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. This week on the pod, singer, songwriter, and sideman extraordinaire Tom Heyman swings by the Shedio to talk about the Mission District, hypergentrification, songbooks, and slow horses. Let's get into it. Everybody, what's up? It's Maddie C. I'm your host. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. Uh, today on the show, I've got Tom Heyman, a singer-songwriter from San Francisco who's also in a terrific band called Go to Blazes. And uh, we have a great chat. I'm really excited for you to hear that. I uh, know it's been over a week since I said it and I uh, and I mentioned it and I made a big deal of it on the pod, the blog. Um, and I am recording these intros before I leave for Central America, so uh, these are all kind of getting front-loaded, gang. But uh, did you remember that WAIM has hit a year old? On February 3rd, What Am I Making hit the one-year anniversary, which I think is a pretty impressive accomplishment, and I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited about what we're building here and what I am making and what we're making together. And um, this is a great time for you to go over and renew that subscription or sign up for a new paid subscription. Remember that subscriptions are what run this thing, and it would be great to have your paid support. I really, really could use it. The more paid support that I have, the more I can justify the massive amount of hours that I spend putting together things like the pod and the radio show and uh, the daily posts over at the blog. Uh, Make sure that uh, you are paying attention to our regular weekly WAIM radio show, what Am I Making Radio appears every Friday at noon over on the Rock in the Suburbs Radio Network at suburbsradio.com. Every Friday at noon Eastern, a live show goes up. It's a 60-minute radio hour of uh, themed music. Uh, this past week, we took a deep dive into Cosmic Americana territory. And uh, you can get involved by submitting your favorite songs on the theme for each week. Those posts come out each Tuesday, excuse me, each Thursday. Um, and then the show airs live on Friday. And then the following Tuesday, you can catch archived episodes. You can always go over and catch all the old episodes over in the WAIM radio tab at whatamimaking.substack.com. Also, I want to remind you that I am hitting the road this summer. Uh, throughout the month of June, I will be all over the eastern United States. I still am looking for hosts in a number of spots. Most specifically, I still need a place to land in uh, in the southeast, I'm looking for some shows in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Uh, head on over to phonophorerecords.com slash Matthew Carlson to take a look at uh, dates and how the show, uh, excuse me, how the uh, house shows work and uh, get an idea how we can have some fun together. Please reach out. Let us know how we can make something happen together. It would be so much fun to, uh, to get together and uh, put together a night of music with you and your neighbors and friends. Um, want to make sure that you also know that the best way to power my uh, Shedio Hits the Road tour is by supporting my uh, postcard program. This is an opportunity for you to uh, support the tour. You can spend uh, a little bit, and uh, I will 
pick out a postcard along the way just for you, and I will write a hand little little handwritten note, and I'll send it off to your house, and you can get a nice piece of mail to brighten your day and your mailbox, and you can also do some good in supporting the Shedio Hits the Road Tour. You can get one of those for as little as $15, or you can buy a five-pack for 60 bucks, and I'll send you a postcard from five different spots along the road. Head on over to phonoforrecords.com slash postcard program to check that out. Uh, are you guys paying attention to the 13 films lists? Um, we've, uh, we've, we've had a guest, uh, my old friend and bandmate, Jason Vyers just, uh, just shared his list with us, his 13 films to get to know him. And we've got another guest coming very soon. And I would love to hear about your list. So please reach out and let us know how you want to get started sharing your 13 films to get to know you. This has been a really fun exercise and I've worked closely with a couple of people to put these up, and I've got a couple more folks I'm talking to, I would love for you to share your list with people. Again, one of the things I say all the time about what we're doing here in this space is that we are building community, and this is one great way to do it. So please, uh, send me an email at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com or go on over to speakpipe.com slash whatamimaking. Leave me a voicemail. Let me know that you want to put your 13 films list together. I can help you get started doing that right away. And we can share it here with the What Am I Making audience. Uh, Speaking of movies, don't forget that on March 13th, we will be doing a live screening and discussion with a uh, a Q&A section uh, for the great Swedish coming-of-age film, My Life as a Dog. That will be happening at the Robin Theater in Lansing, Michigan on March 13th. You can get your tickets now at the Robin Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E.com, therobintheater.com. And you can pick up tickets for the show. Or you can even buy a combo where you get a copy of the book that the film was based on, as well as a ticket to the screening. So please, make sure you go over there. We're trying really hard to sell this thing out so that we can do more of these. I mentioned before that uh, as I record this, I am one day away from heading to Central America with my mother. By the time you hear this, uh, I will be hopefully back from that journey. My plan is to be gone from the 27th of January through the 11th of February. I'm recording this in the future. You're listening to it in the present. It might have happened in the past. I don't understand how time works. But I'm going to spend a couple of weeks in Central America with my mom. And uh, I'm looking forward to telling you guys all about that. Don't forget that we are deep into our best band of the 90s bracket challenge. We've got four new matchups each Saturday as we break down the best band of the 90s tournament style. Make sure you're getting your votes in. Make sure you're paying attention. I want to see those comments and those thoughts and those arguments. Let's get those going in the threads. Uh, I will say again, I know I already mentioned this earlier when we were talking about supporting the show and the anniversary, but got to say and, and remind you that this show and the work that I do here and at the blog are powered solely by your financial support. I am doing everything I can to keep from adding a paywall to what I am doing at whatamimaking.substack.com. I don't want to limit or cap anybody's ability to see, read, and hear this stuff. I'm really proud of what I'm doing. I want to make it as accessible for people as possible, but that requires some largesse from folks. And so I need you, if you're able, to go and sign up for a paid subscription today so that you can help support the work that I'm doing and help keep it available for people who are not in a financial position to be able to support the show. So you can support for as little as five bucks a month. Just go on over to whatamimaking.substack.com and you can sign up for a monthly, yearly, or even a founding membership. Thank you so much for your support. 
The last thing I would ask from you is you're already in there listening to the show. Like, rate, and review the pod wherever you listen. I say this all the time. This is one of the best ways for us to increase our audience and reach more listeners and find more folks like us. So please, it's especially important if you're listening in Apple Podcasts that platform carries a ton of weight so if you could go over there give us a five-star review leave a nice little one or two sentence comment you don't have to lie you don't have to tell us anything that isn't really true if you like the show go on over and find a nice way to say so all right thank you so much for all of your support and letting me get through all of that housekeeping and that busy work i sure appreciate it now let's get to the primary reason that you are here and that is a conversation with my interesting and brilliant guests It's no wonder that Tom Heyman wound up becoming a songwriter. Just minutes into our chat, it was clear that I was in the presence of a born storyteller and someone who would feel at ease holding court or chatting effortlessly about anything from politics to prose. Right out of the gate, we began talking about Heyman's brilliant new album, 24th Street Blues, and the genesis of its songs. Tom talks about how he built the record and the unreliable narrator that he employs in nearly every tune to tell fictional tales bred from real-life scrapes and bruises. We cover his solo work and then wind our way back to his great 90s band, Go to Blazes, and the amazing story of the album they recorded live in one 10-hour session. It's still one of my favorite records, and it's a treat to get to tell that directly to the dude who made it. Tom goes on to shed light on his songwriting process, and we discover that both he and I set out to be storytellers with songs and chords. We discuss his time as a hired gun for artists like Alejandro Escovedo and Chuck Prophet, and we talk frankly about the current economic realities of being an independent artist in the dark days of the 21st century. It's a heartening and enlightening chat with a true storyteller who is every bit as interesting as the characters that he creates. Here now is my chat with singer, songwriter, and awesome dude, Tom Heyman. Enjoy. I really want to, I mean, I know the sort of cheesy thing is let's start at the beginning and work our way forward. I want to talk about the new record because I think it's a fascinating story. And I think it's my favorite thing you've done. And we'll talk about how that, that took some doing. Um, but can you, sure. can you just tell me the the story of this record and where it came from and kind of the, the, the genesis of it? Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't set out necessarily to make a, uh, I kind of follow the Nick Lowe school of songwriting, which is I'm, I'm not super duper prolific. Uh, it's like, when do I make an album? You know, when I have 15 or 20 songs written that right. I can, that, that's when I make my next record. You know, Fair enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm not one of those guys that writes hundreds and hundreds of songs. So, um, my last record came out in 2017 uh, uh, and it was like a kind of like a pure genre exercise uh, show business baby. It was all about like pub rock and my love for, you know, electric guitar and, you know, Dr. Feelgood and rock pile and their American yeah. antecedents. Yeah. Um, uh, so there was that, you know, but it, so 
I, I had written specifically for that thing. At the same time, I had these other songs that I was writing that um, really, you know, didn't fit in there. And, uh, you know, when that record had kind of run its course, um, I started, you know, gathering up the other songs that I had and looking at them and, and, uh, and they were all like, there was like five of them that were like specifically about my neighborhood and about the mission and about sort of hyper gentrification in, in, you know, like either, either directly or, um, or a little more obliquely about that. Um, and so I was like, so there was that. And then, um, you know, the record before that, uh, that cool blue feeling had a song on it called number nine, which is about the number nine Petrera bus, which runs close to my house. And it had a line in it, uh, about the 24th street blues. And I was like, that line is a, 24th Street Blues is either a song title or a record title. And it turned out to be kind of both. It was like I decided that I was going to call the record 24th Street Blues like before it was entirely written. And then I had to write the song, which it was one of the last songs I wrote for the record. And um, and then everything just sort of fell in place. And at the same time, you know, I was sort of I had this thing where I I wasn't sure I wanted to do vinyl again. Vinyl is, you know, it feels like you kind of have to do it when you're working on a certain level. And, you know, I've yeah. been doing this a long time and I was like, it's like this thing. It's like, well, you got to kind of have it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm a, I like vinyl as much as the next person. I, you know, I've lugged, you know, my record collection from the East coast to the West coast, dragged it around with me. Blah, blah, it, blah, you know. But thousands. as an artist, it's wicked expensive to make it. Well, it's not just that it's wicked expensive to make. It's it's expensive, it's heavy, and it's fragile. So if you're someone like me where, you know, you don't have somebody taking care of, you know, I'm, I'm a completely independent um, artist. I didn't even – I've never even tried to find a label – uh, to do my stuff because I've been at this long enough to know that like, unless somebody's advancing you serious money or unless they have, um, you know, like a really good infrastructure, um, I feel like I'm as capable as the next guy of fucking up my release. I don't need somebody else to do it. <laughs> it's, I mean, <laughs> so, it's, uh, it's seriously, funny. I mean, like, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Tom. Cause I think a lot of people think there's some sort of magic, potion that happens and a lot of it is about like networking and relationships from a label standpoint well if a, but that's why i say if a label has an infrastructure right. or a yeah. rep yeah um but you know but if they don't and you're just these days, there's very to, few people who are having somebody work their record right yeah and and ultimately um no matter how you slice it you pay for it so even if you're signed to somebody else you know, the cost of publicity and all that stuff sort of comes out of your end one way or another. Exactly. So um, anyway, uh, I wasn't sure I was going to do vinyl, but in in 2017, I had a song of mine in uh, was published in Acoustic Guitar Magazine. And it was like this really sort of I'd done this session there for their website and and uh you know, like a tape, like taped a in studio performance, yeah. and um, 
I, I did it with my friend Dan Stewart from Green on Red, and and Dan and I they toured together a lot. And and um, they acoustic guitar chose this song of mine to put in the magazine, and then seeing it in print as a lead sheet, I was like, that's kind of cool. I think instead of doing vinyl, what I'm going to do to have some sort of value added thing to sell alongside, yeah. you know, so I'm not just like, oh, here's a CD, blah, 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 the download, you know, available on Bandcamp. I was going to make a book, um, an illustrated songbook, and I was going to go all the way, not like a book with like chord charts or just lyrics, but like full on, you know, full on notation. Like tablature and everything. Tablature and everything. So if a song has, if so, so I did that. And what I did was, is I reached out to the guy who had, um, who had uh, um, done a transcription of, of this particular song for acoustic guitar magazine. By this point, he was the managing editor, um, Adam Perlmutter. And, uh, you know, I asked him if he could do it for me and, and I can read music, but I, and I can like write it a tiny little bit, but not like, somebody else can plus they you know they everybody uses programs now and you know everybody uses a program you know uh i i forget what what they're called um sibelius and other stuff like that and matt you sort of you can play something into it and it spits it back at you and then you make the corrections and put the tie in the right place and dot the right eighth note and stuff like that and all that stuff yeah. i just can't i can't do that the hardest thing about this book was proofreading the transcriptions for me uh, you know, just like going, I think that's right. Um, so, so, uh, so Adam Perlmutter did the transcriptions. And then the big thing was that my wife, who's a fine art oil painter with a, you know, uh, teaches, teaches studio art at University of California, Davis and at San Francisco city college. And is, you know, I, I, I wanted her to make a sort of bespoke piece for each song, which, oh my God, uh, no which she did. Um, and then, so I went back to the idea that, um, uh, you know, when I was first learning how to play music back in the day, my, you know, the thing to do was I'd go to the music store, um, and I would buy the book of the album. So like, so like I had, you know, harvest, you know, and it had all, you know, it had all the chords, you know, it had all the songs on harvest in sort of lead sheet form. Um, oh, and, and then, you know, some expanded artwork because you have this thing that's like 60, 70 pages long and you, so there's a little bit the same artwork as the album, but a few more pictures thrown in and it's, it was just like very cool. So I had a bunch of books like that. And in, in particular, I had a book that, that was a collection of, um, uh, the two Grateful Dead records, uh, uh, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty sort of bookended things and it was published by their, you know, like by the Grateful Dead's company through Warner Music, which was, you know, their umbrella group of their publisher. And when you, you know, back in the day, and maybe still today, you know, if you had a major deal on a publishing deal, they, they always published a songbook just because it was an extra income stream sort of. And this book, this Grateful Dead book, is just like, it's just like the most beautiful thing. It's designed by... uh Alton Kelly and Stanley Mouse, and each song had this incredible, you know, Kelly and Mouse were the big poster artists in the 60s and, and uh, in San Francisco, and their, you know, graphic design studios in San Francisco, they designed the book. All the lead sheets are like in a calligrapher's hand, and every song has just like this incredible bespoke thing, and I tried to, 
I, I, I wanted to sort of find a way to sort of rec- recreate that. And That's awesome. So I did, um, you know, by, you know, browbeating my wife during COVID to make the <laughs> artwork. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's not an illustrator. And it was kind of, this was kind of like halfway between an illustration job and a, um, and a, and a regular, you know, painting thing. And so it was, it was kind of amazing. And it was like a kind of a steep learning curve. Um, cause you like, you have to put the book together. I had a friend who worked in publishing who helped me sort of assemble the whole thing. And then now you, there's these print on demand companies, um, that, you know, are kind of amazing. So like I was able to, you know, not, it, it was, it was cheap. It was like, when I was cheap, it was, it was, I only need to make as many as I need. Right. And it's, and it's, it's a way for you to make enough of them that the people who are interested in buying it can get it. And there's, yeah, I mean, I have a big, I have a big stock of them, you know, but it's not crazy. I don't have five, you know, I don't have 50 boxes of books in my living room, which I would have had if I, if I'd gone the traditional, like, you know, gone to a sort of a traditional press you know, there, there are some restrictions when you do print on demand. You can, you know, they, there's some size restrictions and some materials restrictions and stuff like that. Right. And, you know, this was the kind of thing where, like, I actually would have subbed something like this out to um, to an art press or something like that if, if somebody had reached out to me. But it um, – and, you know, sort of taken a, taken a hit on that to have it be cloth bound or something right. like that, you know. But – Nonetheless, uh, you know, it came out, it came out amazing. And, and, uh, so that was the idea. It was like, I'm going to have a book and the music and it's going to be this sort of special thing. And then at the last minute, um, I don't know, I read some article somewhere that like vinyl had surpassed CDs and I was just like, ah, shit, I guess I have to do this. And, you know, the people that I've used to, um, do my last two vinyl things like there it was kind of screamingly fast uh the turnaround time which That's was kind of, which is amazing because you know everybody's getting all these horror stories where it's taking 11 12 13 months to get these guys turned it around in three months that's incredible i had a the last time i pressed vinyl was 21 and it was very bad then I got a I got a deal because I'd worked with the folks in Detroit before at Archer Records. And yeah. Mike Mike said, I can get this done for you in six months. He like hustled to get it done for me in six. At the time they were they were working ten to eleven. Yeah, and it, this, so. you know, this is I use I use, you know, Pirates Press in Emeryville, okay. which, which is like a you know, they're all their pressing is done. You know, they're kind of like a they're almost like a they're they're kind of a middle man. Yeah, because they used GZ in the Czech Republic, and GZ never stopped making vinyl ever. Right. And during the pandemic, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, when when someplace would go out of business, they would buy they they have you know they expanded, so I think they have a hundred machines. Oh my god, I I knew it was big. I didn't know it was that big. Yeah, I think they have a hundred machines. So like, they're just like it was kind of you know it was kind of incredible. It's not a boutique, you know, it's not like, but it's also like, you know, it's, it's assembly line work, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason that it got expensive and that it took a long time was that, you know, for, 
a very long time no one made new machinery and for yeah a surprisingly um, long period of time nobody even made parts yeah and then you know there was the universal fire and there was like a yeah. lot of blanks got lost in that yes and so you know it, it's just a, it's a weird thing you know it's like it's a really strange it, kind finalist, of uh, it, you know it's it is what it is I, I i like it because um it it makes you know it was the way i discovered music and the tactile part of it is kind of great you know like being able to hold something that you can hold up and actually read um be, you know like without oh, putting it's amazing on, you know so so i did it and and you know my only regret is that you know, it's like, you know, they do the, the the price break between 250 and 500 pieces is just, it's incredible. It's like an incredible price break. It's only like a couple bucks more to get to go another 250 piece, you know, like 250 pieces. And I just like in my last two releases, I, you know, I had done 250 and, um, you know, it took me a year and a half or so to get rid of them most of them and uh this time i'm i'm down very like i i blew through the vinyl really really fast i'm down to my last you know i have a tour of europe in march um and i'm gonna be like after that and i just really really regret not doing 500 pieces but at the time when it came time to do it i was like if I do 500 pieces of vinyl i'm gonna get up every day and walk into the living room and be staring at failure so <laughs> I have to walk into a different shed than the one that I'm in, Tom. Mine, yeah. uh, mine are all stored out with the uh, Christmas decorations and my drum kit. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, so I'm going to basically, I, th I think I'm going to have to do another run. Um, I'm just, that, but that's a, what a wonderful problem to have. I mean, I get that you regret it, but like, it's, I it's regret crazy. it because, uh, because I would have, you know, just, you know, from, you know, like from, from a purely, you know, dollars and cents point of, you know, point, I would have made so much more per unit. Right. Um, uh, I hate to be crass about it, but you know, everything is expensive and, 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 you know, we, we can, I can indie rock math my way through you know like saying oh i you know i've, I've made money you know, indie rock math is like <sighs> never real never really counting what you totally spent on stuff you know uh, the meme that i see going around all the time and i'm probably gonna fuck up the numbers but it's like a musician someone who packs five thousand dollars of gear into a car to drive 50 miles to get paid fifty dollars I mean, that's, I mean, and that's, it's an over exaggeration. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's not that much of an exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just simply isn't. I mean, oh no, I've had, I, most of my nights, you know, are, most of my nights are like that. If I play with my band, if I'm not playing solo, that that's a good night. Yeah. I'm, you know, I've, I, I've made a little money in the business, always working for other people or um you know, through sinks and so stuff basically like that. so basically it largely by writing then is the way that you've made most of your money uh well uh, be by being a freelance guitar player and pedal steel player um for that's that's when i've actually made money when somebody else gotcha. is paying me these things and then and then you know actual money uh it I, that i've made with you know where it seemed like free money was 
and even then you're not doing the indie rock math on it. Um, there's a couple of, of pretty key placements that have made right. generated some income over the years and continue to. So, but uh, not, and that's wonderful. You know, um, it's a, it's a hard game, you know, it's a really, really, like you're saying, you're not just writing songs and recording them. You're doing all of it. You know, you're figuring out how to, what, you know, you're the, you're the logistics guy. You're the, the product buyer, your accounts receivable, your and, and, yeah, the social and then, marketing guy, you're everything. I mean, that's, that's the thing for me is like, uh, just sort of maintain like social media, um, just like the way everything has sort of been outsourced and, you know, I can't really complain cause I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the label, but, uh, but like literally everything has been outsourced. Like if you're playing in a club, um, you, you know, like I'm old enough to have like when, when I was really getting started with my professional career, like back in professional making finger quotes, um, back when I lived in Philadelphia and go to blazes was like getting started. And we thought that, you know, we had it made cause we were playing at JC Dobbs on South street on a Friday night and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the fact that the, that, 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 that club you know, had a publicist on retainer was like, you know, it was like, oh, well, that makes sense. I guess you would want to try and get your shows into the paper. They yeah. were shouldering some of the burden of that. Right. It was a, it was a symbiotic. They don't do that. They're like, clubs don't do that anymore. They're like, no, God, oh, no. you. Why? And, no, they're, it's always, it's always on the artist. Why didn't you bring more people? Yeah. So why didn't you do this? Uh, um, Let's talk about go to blazes because I have a lot of feelings. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, and other crimes is, and I am not blowing sunshine, sir. It's truly one of my favorite records that I own. I love it. Uh, it it has a very special place in my heart with two very special friends, and um, I just uh, got get drunk with those people two weekends ago in my favorite place in the world, and we listened to that record very loudly. And I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate it so much that it's in the world and that we get to do that together and you get to, you got to give us that gift. So thanks. Well, that's, that's great. It is uh, just really lovely to hear that. Um, you know, that record is, is like, it was the least planned sort of thing ever. It was just like this thing we, you know, the way, the whole way it came together was that, you know, we had, we had a deal in the States with um, this company, Eastside Digital, which was like a the subsidiary of Ryko Disc. And uh, we were signed. We, you know, after our first record came out on 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 Eastside, we got signed to a, a label in Germany um, that was going to we were Eastside like licensed the records to this company in Germany. And uh and they want then that record company Glitterhouse are still they're still going. Um, and they had a very, very robust mail order catalog um, because they were dealing in a lot of imports. They started out being like the um, like the sole place in Europe where you could get um, uh, sub pop and uh, okay. amphetamine reptile and stuff like that. And then they sort of expanded into the sort of the Americana um, field. It wasn't called that at the time, um, uh, but uh, 
you know, they always they always try to get you to do something exclusively for their mail order. So it's Glitter House mail order only. And they had a, you know, small budget. And so they had this like minuscule budget to do this thing. And so the way we figured out to do it, you know, we were recording with with Eric Amble at the time, a lot of records. Eric was our producing our records. And uh, he was like, OK, so we will make it. We'll do a live in the studio record because that way um you know you're you're recording and mixing on the fly and so and we're like okay you make it special we you know we were we were big song collectors and sort of music nerds you know thus you know gene clark way ahead way before anybody else was doing it you know gene clark uh uh lee uh, hazelwood uh, lee hazelwood um kinky friedman gordon lightfoot you know like sort of favorite songwriters um and the songs all sort of fell together a couple songs by us um you know a song by our friend bruce langfeld um and then when we went to make the record the whole record you know we started at four in the afternoon we were done at two at night so it was like 10 hours 10 hours start to finish um and so you know we we knew the songs we were going to do we rehearsed them and we knew that we were going to we had to expand the lineup in the studio so that like a live overdub so our friend jim duffy was playing was uh playing organ um i think jim was playing organ and then joe flood who we had recorded with joe's like an incredible um multi-instrumentalist mandolin fiddle guitar uh you know all that stuff and then bruce langfeld who also recorded with us from time to time was there as well. So there's, there was no, we, we couldn't overdub anything. Everything was recorded live to two tracks. So we'd run down the song once. And if there was right. something happened, needed to happen with it, um, we'd address it right then, like the come out of the control room. And then, uh, and then it was a second or third take each time. Like by the third take, like all the fader moves were down. So, so Eric and, and Albert, uh, the the rent engineer knew like oh okay there's a guitar solo coming up we're gonna ride a fader on that or there's a backup vocals and we're gonna ride the faders on those and so everything was done like there was no mixing to be done at all everything was a complete take so I mean I and I it was knew, I knew that story and then my buddy brought the vinyl version and then read the liner notes and learn that story again. And then I hear you tell it again, and every time it just makes me so goddamn excited because well, it's, it's such you know, an it's, artful yeah, it's and like, fun it's, it's thing. It's 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 a really good. It's not the only way to make records, but it's, no. it's extremely satisfying to do it that way because it's like, I mean, there's always something that you you know it was it can and maybe you're not going to get you know the your best personal performance but you know everybody was like listening it, it just you know it doesn't always work and it just happened to work this time i it's a beautiful um, and record. i think and i and i love i, I think, think the thing i love about the the way that you guys made it or felt like you needed to make it to do it in budget and make it fun is that it has so much energy tom it's such a it's not a live record but it's a record that is alive that's the extremely inexpensive cocaine that we were taking back at the time. 
the fine uh the the fine black market of philadelphia oh no no that was recorded that 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 guitar was recorded in brooklyn new york and all uh any any substances were acquired there <laughs> <laughs> they were you you uh you, you strictly shop local well yeah you know uh i'm curious to know because i talk about this with so many people and i write about it a lot at the blog and it stirs up a lot of controversy uh tell me about your relationship as an artist with spotify you know and i know spotify is an avatar for digital streaming but uh, uh you get what i'm saying i think yeah i mean i kind of re- i really resisted it um at first um i didn't use it i didn't um I kept my stuff off of it uh, and you can't, uh, it feels like you can't not have it now. If you want to get booked, if you want to get covered, if you want to get written about, you got to be on the game. Yeah. And so it's just like, uh, I I wish that there was, you know, I, it, it bugs me to see there's, um, there's people I know out there um, who, I mean, I think it's pretty crooked. Um, I think it's a pretty crooked model. Um, And it's, and, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's also like, as we're learning, it's, you know, completely rife for being gamed. I don't know if you read that article in the New York times last week about the two lawyers in DC whose music was, uh, did you read that article about those two guys? No. So there's, oh, oh yeah. So you got to read this article. Um, these guys, they were like, they had like a sort of a folk band type thing. They've been, you know, sort of, you know, music as an avocation their entire adult lives. And they put out a record and then it was on, it was, uh, they put out a record of songs or something. I forget what they were called. Big dog or something like that. Anyway, the article is fascinating. There's a whole um, industry now of people that just take your songs and retitle them, take your recordings and retitle them and upload them to Spotify and Deezer and Tidal and YouTube and claim them as their own. They do it thousands of times so that they're collecting, they might only be collecting like $25 per stream, but that adds up. And so they're they're completely uh, counterfeiting your music, meaning they're calling your music theirs, rebranding it. When you SoundCloud it, it comes up as some made up thing. And it's, you know, maybe it's got, you know, a thousand spins. Right. You know, so it's all under sort of 60,000. And you do that multiple times and it adds up to this. It adds up to this big pile of money. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's the, that's the, the gaming of the sort of spoofing of, of legit artists. And I read that article and I was like, huh, I should SoundCloud. I, I, I should, I should put my, you know, SoundHound onto, onto one of my songs and see if it pops up as somebody else besides me. Um, and then I was like, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, kn- I do not want to know. I don't oh, want to wow. know. But what it does is it stops you from getting the plays and it stops you from getting your money. Right. So what little the, money, what so, little money so, you might so actually get. That. And Spotify was the slowest 
of all the services to take stuff down. Uh, YouTube took it down a lot faster. Um, apparently, uh, Apple was pretty slow, but like some of the other ones, like they'll 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 t they'll take down the counterfeit ones. These guys could had to prove these this this band had to prove that they were themselves the actual artists to spot them. You should read this article if you want to be horrified. It came out last week in the New York Times. Um, I I have to know, read so, this article. So there, I, I'll I you know I, I if you just put in Spotify, uh, if you just put Spotify or streaming music, counterfeit streaming music into the New York Times search engine, you'll you'll find the article. Awesome. Um, and it, and these guys only found out because one was an intellectual property attorney, and the other was a, another kind of attorney. They were both you know on the digital frontier of of, of the law. And it's like, I, I can't compete with that. And so so on top of the fact that Spotify pays this sort of very paltry rate, um, uh, that, you know, there's this other, there's this whole other sort of, you know, scam that goes on with streaming music. There's also people who stream noise, people who stream silence, people who, so it's like, the, and, and those types of things. And now AI music. Yeah. AI streams like you can just invent this thing and they just sort of dominate the algorithm. So, um, it, it yeah. Cause the algorithm, the it, algorithm doesn't it's have like, Spotify is like a, it's like a, it's a thing that you have to do. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And it's fucked up. And, uh, and, and the and, algorithm you know, at the same time, we're here we are in the future. What am I going to do? Like get off my lawn. I can't do it anymore. You have to do it. And I use Spotify and, and, and there's something absolutely, you know, like if I'm out for a walk or something like that and, you know, I want to hear a Leon Russell record. Or I want to hear some other thing. It's like right there at my fingertips. And it's like, yeah. Oh, as a consumer, at the as same a consumer time. it's impossible to deny how valuable and amazing it is. Like that's just such yeah. an amazing deal. Uh, yeah. As an artist, you know, people are generally speaking, getting screwed. You know, well, if you're not, I mean, if you're that's not Taylor whole, Swift. That's the whole problem is that like um, the streaming world in general is, has, you know, laid waste to the model that we have for, it's destroyed film. It's destroyed TV. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's destroyed print media. Um, I mean, so I think there's a case to be made that the television is the only art form maybe that continues to be as good as it was 20 years ago. Uh yeah, but yeah, but you do understand what's coming, right? Oh, you, absolutely. You're absolutely. Meaning, oh, meaning, absolutely. Um, we're, you know, we're, my, my my sister my sister works in the business. Okay. Um, and and there is literally less than half the amount of scripted content coming now. Yep. So there was the strike and they're just, they're not going to pay for it anymore because the model doesn't make money. Netflix loses money. They all have lost enormous amounts of money. So there's this massive belt tightening and, and like, you know, the shows that we think of as, you know, incredible, you know, whatever, um, 
they wouldn't get made today and they're not going to get made and they're not going to continue to get made. And so some other thing is going to have to come along, but it, you know, the, all of that's over because streaming, they, they haven't figured out a way. The subscription model is not a way to make money. So it's interesting because um, it's not a, it's not a way to make money apparently for corporations. And it's also not a way to pay artists fairly. So I'm kind of curious. Yeah, um, kind of well, curious well, how it's because, it's because everything has been, uh, you know, like I don't want to go too far down, like oh, sort of good? thing, but but uh, you know, everything is a financial instrument now. Hmm. So so everything is like the that classic episode uh, or that story arc in that in I think it's in the first season of The Sopranos. Everything is a bust out. So. Uh, you know, uh, hedge funds buy, you know, companies, companies go public and, you know, everything becomes about the shareholder, um, and, and, and the value of, you know, like this, this, you know, the, the value of, uh, you know, to the shareholder. And so you're, you're fucked in that, in that, in that, in that, in that, in that uh, scenario, because everything is about squeezing every last dollar out of it um, and just stripping it, strip stripping resources to a way to make something more profitable and more profitable and more profitable until there's nothing left. Right. So you know everything's a bust out. You know, squeeze it till it's dead, throw it away, get another one. Yep. It's like um, I, it's the burner phone mentality of capitalism. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's I mean, and everything is ev- it's not just that everything is more hyper capitalized. It's that it has to happen now. You know, there at least used to be this philosophy that we had an economic model that paid out over time. Now, even the experts in the economic model don't want to wait for it. They want it today. And the only reason they're willing to take it today is because nobody gave it to them yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel like, you know, I mean, we've seen this at. I think in most most apparently in the record industry, but I think TV as well. You know, we don't have as long of a of a leash anymore, even in say network TV or major labels of ten or twenty years ago, right? Like, you know, what was the joke even in the two thousand tens? You know, Seinfeld wouldn't get made today because it would have it would have failed after five episodes, and they would have just you know, because it. you know the first you know the first year of Seinfeld was really not very good. Correct. It wasn't. I mean, there was the, an idea there. Tom, the um, first year of Cheers is hit or miss, and it and, winds up being and, a great show. And and literally nobody watched The Wire. No, it's first two seasons. I didn't, and I came in on season three because Terry Gross kept telling me this is the greatest show in America. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I watch it from the start just because I'm a because I'm a nerd, uh, but but. Uh, you know, it's, it's not for everybody. And, 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 and like that kind of thing, it's just like, it, it's harder and harder to make. Anyway, we, we've, we've gone way off. We've gotten we way off. Spotify. It's, it's, I'm not even going to say it's an evil. It's just, it's just the way things are now. So, yeah. you know, go along to get along. I don't have the, um, you know, the people that have managed to stay off the services, you know the you know the people who have done that for the most part are people who um who already have careers and uh dedicated following and um you're not Joni Mitchell 
And so I'm not, or, or, you know, there's, 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 there, you know, there's a, you know, there's more than a handful of other people sure. who have managed to do it. I don't know how to do that. I don't have it. I, um, I don't have that kind of fan base. I don't have that sort of direct connection to people through direct mail. Um, um, you know, my career, you know, I'm a late, I'm a late starter as a, as a, as a, as a solo artist. Um, you know, I was almost 40 when I started, um, you know, making records under my own name and I don't have that. So I can't claim it. And so I have to use Spotify and I have to use all these services. Right. You know? Uh, what is, uh, what is the live market like for you? In the, I won't even call them post-COVID years. In the, uh, in the years of COVID, uh, you know, it's hit or miss. I have places where I, you know, there are places where I can go where there are people, you know, a handful of people who know where I am, who I am. I, you know, I have a different connection um, to, uh, you know, I've, I've just sort of done this so long as. Um, as a uh, a musician for hire, so yeah. you know I've played for a lot of people, and so you know I've seen it from a couple of different perspectives. Um, you know, uh, so I've played with people that have actual you know careers, <laughs> um, and and then there's me. Uh, uh, so there are people. Um, you know, you it, it's all it's all that, that come out. So, you know, I played on the East coast, a couple of, you know, back in November, I, I played in Philadelphia and in New York. Um, and I know enough people, um, in both places to have people come out and it, so it was great. I don't know if I could recreate it or how often I could recreate it. Um, uh, and you know, I play with some regularity in San Francisco and it's hit or miss. Um, okay. everything is hit or miss at this point. San Francisco sure. itself is, um, you know, I can only use, uh, San Francisco itself, um, is a special case because it's had the, the sort of one of the worst post COVID recoveries of all the major cities in the United States still hasn't bounced back. So, um, I don't know. You know, I have a bunch of work coming up in the spring and, you know, ask me again then. Fair you enough. Know. No, yeah, ask me I, again. I, I've, been, I've been, you know, I, I've just been, I did some playing. I've done some playing behind this record. I have a whole lot more coming up. You know, I'm going to Southern California end of February, going to the UK in March, uh, you know, heading to the East Coast again in June. Nice. Uh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, that's the, you know, the one part of my career that's like sort of that I've sort of done almost in spite of myself. Like, uh, you know, somebody calls me up to go do a gig. I go do it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't, um, it, as far as I, I can tell you what, like playing live is like very important to me. Um, I love doing it. There's no, there's nothing like it. Um, you know, there's nothing like a, you know, like making a connection. Um, that said, um, it's hit or miss. It's up or down. It's yeah. up and down, you know? So, uh, I didn't realize how important 
playing live was until it was taken away from me. You know, and I'm a guy who probably at that time was playing ah, just 20 or 25 gigs a year, not a lot, a couple times a month, you know, mostly yeah. in the state. And um, and I found myself jonesing real hard after just a few weeks, Tom. Well, seeing, you know, seeing the empty yeah. calendar and realizing I don't get to have that. Like you, t- I realized I was taking that connection for granted a little bit. <laughs> well, I had a slightly different take on it. Um, <laughs> uh meaning uh it's always been a sort of you know i'd rather um i I love to play live you know if anybody asks me to do it you know i rarely do i say no um i'll you know i'll I'll play anywhere under almost any circumstances um uh it you know it comes from a uh whatever deep need to, to be seen that I have inside of me. I blame my parents. Um, uh, kidding. Um, but, uh, at the same time, you know, like when I, when I've had a record out and stuff like that, you know, I do, I wind up doing some work. I, I feel like I never do enough because I sort of have to act as my own agent. And it's something that I find, um, quite difficult to do. And so when COVID came along, um, I was at the end of an album cycle. I had just finished making a record. I had just finished making 24th Street Blues. Like I finished the record. I got the I got the final mixes back for 24th Street Blues the uh, three days before San Francisco shut down. Oh wow! When I got the final mixes back, and then I was in no rush to put it out. Um, uh, did I miss playing live? Yes. Did I miss? I what? But it also gave me an excuse to not beat myself up over not booking enough gigs. Understood. So if, if that, if that thing, makes sense, if there's if that, one thing every goddamn musician in the world can agree on, booking sucks. I mean, I think some people some people are really good at it. Um, some people some people I think, are great at it. I don't know anybody. I think, who really I loves think it. some people. Um, uh, enjoy like even though they don't really enjoy it there's there's an aspect of it that they enjoy meaning there's a degree of satisfaction to it uh, yeah i guess you know so um yeah some people are just it's just easier for some people than it is for others and uh it's never been easy for me no and I, and uh, you know the ask I is find always it, hard yeah i find it i find like i'm uh putting people out and I find it tedious as well. So yeah. I feel like, I feel like an asshole who's doing mundane work and I find it grow, grow weary of it quickly. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the sort of the arc of your solo career as we kind of arrive at like, that's that point where you've recorded and finished 24th street blues. Like that's a very, there's a very vivid narrative to that record. Tom, can you talk about the characters that kind of populate the album? I mean, I kind of, I mean, I guess I can, it's all, you know, they're all not, you know, everything is an amalgam. Of course. Um, I I come from uh, like a school of songwriting. um, We're sort of, uh, uh, I, there's rarely is there stuff that's like oblique in my songwriting or, or, uh, you know, up for 
my stuff is pretty straightforward and I, I, I look at it as, as sort of narrative based songwriting. It's something that I've been attracted to since I was a little kid. Um, uh, probably, you know, I don't know how old, I guess I was 10. I don't know. I can't remember how old I was when, uh, I, I, I don't know if excitable boy was Warren Zevon's second or third record. I think it's his second record. I think I, there's the self-titled record and I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Yeah. I, I, it's the second or the third, but you know, it's, there was a big gap um, years wise between them. And, and uh, that was like a real big record for me. I was, I was pretty young and, and like his sort of narrative thing is like the stories in his songs are, are, are very vivid and I can't remember if it's um, John D. McDonald or Ross McDonald, the the um, sort of hard boiled writer that it's one of those guys was like a huge influence on him. Uh, oh, okay. And and he like there, you know, like Warren Zevon tracked him down in Spain where he was retired and became friends with him, and and you know Warren Zevon is like this sort of writer is a sort of songwriter that, 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 that actual fiction writers gravitate towards. So yeah. like him, Warren Zevon, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Um, so one of the, the I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. One of the things I see specifically in the Warren Zevon stuff that I also see uh, in another songwriter, I really like Randy Newman is this idea of the unreliable narrator. That's, that's my thing, man. It's, you know, it's like, like it's, like it's a, like, it's a half so truth. Like I've truth. written, it's like, yeah. there's no truth in my songs. Yeah. Uh, you think it's going to go one way. It's going to go another way. The unreliable narrator is my, that's the, that's my, that's my, that's my joint. Yeah. <laughs> and just to answer your question from earlier, uh, excitable boy is the third Zevon record. You were correct. Wanted dead or alive comes out in 69. And then he doesn't release the self-titled one until 76. Right. Okay. So there's a seven year gap. And then there's two years between that and excitable boy. So I guess I was like 15, 14 or 15 when excitable boy came out and I was just like super into it. Um, like, cause it, you know, it's like, it, it has this sort of huge musical thing in it. And then, um, it, it, just like musically, it's just like so adept. And then, and then, uh, also, um, just like the, the songs themselves are just, they have this. Who writes you know, a pop held, song like Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's quite incredible. I mean, I'd probably listen to that. You know, I went back and forth and back and forth with that song. Like not, you know, like it's, a, you know, it's like a novel. Um, so, you know, I love that. You know, I've always been attracted to songs like Tangled Up in Blue you know, that, that have, they, they tell this, they, they just spool off this really long, vivid um, thing. Um, and just like characters and songs. Um, so it's just always sort of, it's, it's, you know, it's. I've always loved when, and this is one of the things I appreciate, especially about the new record, Tom. It, I love it when people basically give me a short story in three and a half minutes to music. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying. I, I'm trying to do that, you know. Somebody and I, I don't. This sounds like I, I looked at it as a as it as a one act, a two act, or a three act play. You know. Yeah. So, you know, there's I had somebody recently tell me that uh, that my songs were uh, 
short stories with chords. That was one of the reviews I got of a record a year or two ago. And I was like, God damn, I can't do better than that. Yeah. So, um, so, so who are some of your, uh, literary influences or people that you're reading now that you, that you really dig? Uh, I mean, I mean, I've, 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 I've become kind of lazy, uh, with, with a lot of my reading. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I've always been, a, I, I like, I, I get pretty obsessed with, um, certain authors. Um, so, you know, I, I, I still like read a lot of sort of genre based stuff. So I like, like all the sort of new hard boiled writers. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, I loved, uh, um, Todd Goldberg's gangster trilogy. I don't know if you know that. No, I um, don't. Gangsters I, don't die. He's Todd Goldberg's amazing. Uh, uh, he had a collection of sto- short stories called The Low Desert, and it's all, um, it's all sort of kind of hard boiled stuff that takes place around the Salton Sea. Oh wow! And, this sounds uh, great. Uh, it's really good, but his gangster trilogy is just like it's really just like this incredible incredible thing um and it's a it's really funny in a way because it he he just really tools on springsteen a lot in it um in this way that's very funny where it's so the 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 uh the gist of it is just very very quickly not giving anything away this guy who's like sort of a button man for the mob in chicago for the outfit which is the 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 in chicago it's known as the outfit um uh has to go on the He's connected to the family, but he's like just like this regular guy. He's like he's a guy that goes out and he's like a a, 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 um, a hitman, but he has like a wife and a kid and blah 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 blah. And he does his you know does his jobs for whatever, and uh, he has to go on the lamb, and he gets smuggled out of Chicago, and he winds up in Las Vegas after plastic surgery. Um, as a uh, undercover as a rabbi in a huge congregation of uh, in a huge temple in and it's a trilogy the book the last the last like it's won all these awards this year it finally took the third book to get it to the place where and it's just it sounds incredible but it's but it's not and it all makes sense and it's really it's really tightly plotted and really um wry and and exciting and great this sounds fantastic. I I would love to find a new kind of hard boiled author. I I feel like I've written all the Pelicanos I can find, and I love it. This is a, this is a different. This is like a different. It's like such a. It has like sort of everything in a weird way. It's like, um, you know, it's like has all the you know like the whole idea that it's like using this you know this this uh, big co- you know congregation in Las Vegas is like it's like a money laundering operation and there's this and there's that and it's like doing good and doing bad at the same time and just like hidden identities and 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 the, you know this guy who's undercover um as this as this rabbi has had this sort of like like kind of not awesome plastic surgery on his face like underground you yeah. know, done like by these, you know, like the underground surgeons so that he's not recognizable anymore. And that's a whole plot line of how his plastic surgery sort of starts to like his reconstructive surgery starts to go bad on him, but he can't go to the hospital because it all is like this crazy stuff. And uh, and like he like 
he's this guy that like has a sort of a photographic memory. So he's able to um, memorize like passages from the Torah and stuff like that. And so he, he like, he does a kind of a weirdly credible job of being like this rabbi, even though he's Italian and Catholic, but he assumes this identity and, uh, and then he just throws in these, like when he's counseling people, because people are always coming to him for counseling because that's part yeah. of his job. And he just counsels them with Springsteen lyrics. <laughs> and it's just, it's really something else. So I really like him. He's great. Um, I, I just went back and, you know, I loved, I, I, I read all the, a, a bunch of the Mick Heron, um, Slow Horses. I don't know if you watch the TV series. I've I've, uh, I've been devouring the TV show. I've not read okay. any of the books, but I've been so the books, absolutely the books are, loving the show. The books are incredible, and um, and I read them before I saw the um, before I saw the TV series, um, and uh, it just it's just like a very 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 mat like the tv show is just like an absolutely masterful adaptation i mean it's so close it's like oh i'm so happy to hear that i mean it's really really close but it also has its own like the books have a very specific tone the yeah. tv show has a very specific tone and they're not the same but they're completely related and and it's great they really really knocked it out of the park and so i went back um and before the slow horses series, you know, he's got, he's got short stories. He's got standalone novels. He's got like prequels to the slow horses. He's got, you know, other stuff. He's, you know, prolific. He's been at it a long time. Um, and I've, I've been tearing through his, what are called the Oxford novels, which are his first five novels. And they're, they're not espionage um, at all. It's not, you know, it doesn't involve MI six or mi5 or any of that stuff it's just sort of crime fiction but set in suburbia and uh you know it's weird like i've read some authors there's some authors that i really like and you go back and you read their earliest stuff and it's like maybe not that good like they it took them a while to grow into their thing yeah, yeah it takes um, a while to but, find but, your but, voice but, man but, but but mick heron like from his first from his first thing it's just like whoa this dude his first novel is just like incredible. Like wow. they, like, like he's really, really, really good. And, uh, um, it, it, it's really something else. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I read a article on him and it's like, he, 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 you know, he was not popular. Those first five books, he got dropped. He got like, I think the first one sold like 700 copies. Wow. He got dropped by his English publisher before Slow Horse. Well, like on the second Slow Horses book, they're like, yeah, fuck this guy. He's no good. He's not selling later. But he still had an American one. And, and he kept going. So he didn't really have any success until he was like in his 50s. He, like he had wow. a day job. He, he had a day job. He had like, he, he worked. He never gave up his editorial job. I love that perseverance. That's incredible. I mean, um, and. I was like, this guy must have known that he was good. I mean, other people know they're good too, but that's the other thing is that like, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. It's the thing that people don't talk about 
you know, they don't talk about it in music. They don't talk about it. And they especially don't talk about it in the world of literature. Um, and as I like, uh, people have jobs. Yeah. So if you're writing books, you know, unless you're Stephen King, well, bad example, but you really have to be a bestseller again and again and again in order to, um, in order to maintain a lifestyle. I mean, you look at somebody like Joyce Carol Oates, you know, you know, you know, kept her career teaching at Princeton all those years, you know, Russell Banks, like the, you know, the finest, you know, one of the finest writers in America, um, you know, sweet hair after, you know, adapted into a novel, never gave up his job at Princeton. Um, and uh, I'm reading me, a book of uh, Wallace Stegner short stories who, who taught well into his seventies. Yeah. And so, and Wallace Stegner, you know, he, he, I want, you know, I wonder if he could have lived off the proceeds of, you know, angle of repose or, or um, candy. Man. I don't, th- I don't, I don't think he, could have i think he's not a household name right he's not a household i mean he's he's in the world of in the world of letters you know he has a he has a foundation named after him at stanford but it's it's like this kind of amazing thing like you have it's really hard to make it happen and you you know you you mentioned george pelicanos and certainly you know george pelicanos has made more money off of tv than he has off of his books absolutely um, and I'm, you know, and, and George Pelicanos is a bestseller and he has a, and he has a thing, but, but, um, but it's, it's a, it's a really tough way to make a living. And, and, uh, so nobody's, nobody's in the arts to get rich. Well, I mean, very few people. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it happens, you know, people, they don't ha- last usually it, it happens, you know, people, you know, and people write, people write things that are great, um, uh, that, you know, I, I don't have any problem with commercial stuff. I mean, I think that, no. I think that Michael Connolly is like, um, the, you know, an incredible writer. Uh, I, I read everything that he, that he puts out because they, because they're, they're very, you know, he has that thing that, you know, that sort of newspaper man thing Yeah, where, uh, um, there's no fat on his writing really, you know, it's cause it's cause he comes out of journalism. He worked for the LA times for years. Um, and that's yeah, there's a little bit of a Hemingway approach there where there's an economy to it. Yeah. And so, and it's, you know, and he, he evokes Los Angeles really, really good. And, and, uh, um, so, and, and he's, inc- and he's incredibly popular and he's like, and he's got a Stephen King level output, you know, he's incredibly prolific. Uh, he's surely writing off of, you know, he has like, formulas and templates and stuff like that and plugging things in and stuff like it his shit's still really good um there's there's two other guys that i really like i'm sorry i'm I'm sticking horribly into this sort of hard-boiled crime fiction Dude, thing you're, this like, is great i, I, I need some new a, i'm so bad about reading um, fiction tom when i read i tend to just automatically gravitate to nonfiction. And I need some new fiction in my life. So, so all right. So there's there's a guy from New Jersey who I discovered during the pandemic, um, who's so unbelievably good, and for the same reasons that um, 
for the same reasons that like Michael Connolly was good and a, a handle of other people. He was a, he was a crime. He was a daily crime writer for um, crime reporter for the Newark star ledger. His name is Wallace Strobe, and Wallace Strobe's got a series of books uh, um, featuring this one character who's like a thief. And then he's got these other standalone novels and he just understands um, the mid-Atlantic region, specifically New Jersey. Like he writes a lot about New Jersey. Um, he's so unbelievably good. He's, he's like unbelievably good. I can't wait for his next thing. So awesome. Wallace Strobe is great. And then there's one other guy that I discovered. Um, it turns out that I know people that he knows. There's an author from, from San Francisco, lives in Brooklyn now. His name is uh, Patrick Hoffman. And he is an actual private investigator. That's his day job. All right. And he's got a series. Of, he's got a, a trilogy of books that take place in San Francisco. One is called... Uh, Every Man a Menace, and another one is called The White Van, and then there's one more, and they just sort of take place in the sort of crime and drug, like sort of drug selling milieu in San Francisco. And then he, his his last book is called Clean Hands, and it it involves sort of industrial espionage, oh, okay, and or a high sort of corporate espionage unbelievably good like great i can't wait for his next thing i don't know he's a guy who has a day job not selling a ton of books but he's you know he's published by a big press you know that's and i i love the perseverance of that i mean as somebody who has a day job i mean it's driving rideshare but it's a day job um yeah. and uh and is you know doing a podcast and a blog and a radio show and playing solo shows and in a couple bands like you're just kind of hoping that like i can make a little bit of money here and a little bit of money there and i can yeah. rideshare a little bit less like yeah, it's just kind sure. of like it's just this sort of slow grind of like how do I go from forty to twenty eight to twenty six to twenty like just kind of cutting it down and whittling it. Um, sure. While we talk about day jobs, let let's talk about a couple of people that I admire that you've worked with a fair amount. Um, Alejandro Escovedo is one of the most genuinely kind people I've ever met. Who's a a real. Uh, well-known person i've had the pleasure of talking to him two or three different times and he was very magnanimous and uh pleasant um god i hope he's that nice to work with oh he's great he's uh you know I, it's been a long time it's been a while since we've done anything you know many yeah. years we stay in touch um you know we text each other every now and again um uh but you know he's out you know he's out there cobbling it together he was uh, he was he was great to work with. Like he knew how to get stuff out of people, um, get what he needed out of them, like musically. Yeah. So you know, uh, and 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 you know, he, he just came at things in a very human. He, he just put it this way: he was he was terrific to work with. Yeah, he was That's a terrific awesome. guy to work with. And uh, and, other and, a, and a genuinely funny and, and and you know everything that you know you're not seeing you know his persona on stage where he's like sort of he's you know kind of thoughtful and at the same time sort of very dryly funny and stuff like that yeah. that's you know the way he was off stage really 
That's awesome. I mean, that was certainly my experience meeting him a couple of times very briefly. Um, the other guy that that you've done a lot of work with who I admire a great deal is Chuck Prophet. And I see the poster behind your head there. Yeah, yeah, it's a tour that uh tour of Europe that I did with him. Uh, you know, Chuck is just I don't know anybody um the work ethic chucks in terms of um he he's he's a, he's an incredible musician he's an incredible songwriter he's um he was a, like he was a great a great band leader um you know it's like that, and that's and that's a rarity like it's 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 tricky you know, I've, I've, I've played with people that were that that were not didn't know how to articulate what they wanted um, or they couldn't organize a rehearsal or they couldn't cut to the chase or they couldn't tell you that you were doing something wrong or that you were doing something right. And with Chuck, um, you know, big picture, could see the big picture all the time. He knew how, you know, things were supposed to fit together um, and just uh, just uh an admirable musician and and admiral songwriter and singer and everything and he he was it was great i i had an enormous amount of fun with him on the road that's awesome just an enormous amount of fun like just a lot less um and and you know when you're behind some when you're up there and you're behind somebody who's steering the ship greatest thing ever you know it's awesome have you, I know Chuck's done a fair amount yeah. of the house show circuit. Have you done much of that, Tom? Not really, you know, okay. for one okay. reason or another, uh, not for lack of trying. Yeah. I, it's a um, little bit of a, um, it's not that it's a closed shop. Uh, mm. it's, it's just a little, it's a little, you know, I haven't worked very hard to crack the code. Um, uh, I'm kind of cobbling it together on my own, mostly through friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends yeah. and so on. Um, I did a two week stint in July and I've got another four week thing coming in June and it's Eastern half of the U S and it's largely, you know, somebody's willing to put me up for the night and we got room to get 25 people in there. Yeah. And then I go to the next town and we just, kinda... uh, you know, absolutely not opposed to, I think it's like yeah. great. It's fantastic. It's, you know, whenever I, when I've done them, I've enjoyed the hell out of them. I think it's something that I've, you know, was reasonably good at. I just haven't, you know, per probably As you said it's, it, you got to crack the code a little bit. You got to yeah. get into the network and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Um, So you've got the UK and then you said you're doing a Southern California tour in February. Uh, just three dates in, okay. in, in February and playing in Ojai and in LA and in Oceanside um, nice. doing those or with my buddy, Scott Hirsch, who, who mixed the record and Scott and I played together in the court and spark. And he was like the, they were founding member of his golden messenger and still produces their records and records yeah. their records. So I wanted to talk Scott's to you a about, terrific, he's a terrific artist in his own right as well. So we're old buds. So that uh, is Scott, the, is Scott the, the the gent who did the majority of the singing in Court and Spark? Oh no no no! Scott was the guitar player. Okay okay okay. The, all the singing was was done by uh, Mike Taylor. Okay okay. Um, so weird story. Um, my band, the Pantones, played with the Court and Spark at Max Bar in Lansing, Michigan. In 
I'm guessing 2005, 2006. Would you have been on that tour? I might have been probably not because okay. I was splitting my time at, I joined Chuck's band at the very end of 2004. Okay. And I was doing, um, I was doing the court and spark and, uh, and, and Chuck at the beginning of it. And by the end of it, I was largely out of the court and spark because gotcha. uh, the conflicting tours and stuff like that. I had, I'll be honest with you, Tom, I had completely forgotten the his golden messenger connection. I forgot that that was Mike. I didn't, I, until you said that I didn't put them together. So, yeah, I mean, it's weird. He, he started doing those He started making those records under that name while the court and spark was still going. So um, I think he, at least two records were done while the court and spark were still okay. An extant band. And, uh, and then when, you know, and he, Mike had a plan, you know, and, Oh, very clearly. And, and he's very, very much. Very well. of the, and, and, and I, I, you know, I see, I see the, you know, the, the, the line that draws directly from the court and spark artistically into his golden messenger. Things were going in that direction. And, yeah. uh, I, I understand he, Mike had a plan and it was, and it was a good one. And he's another, you know, I've been pretty fortunate with, um, with the, with the bands that I've been affiliated with. It's like, um, they, they were court spark were a wonderful band. I, I, I spent a lot of time on the road with them and, uh, and they were to a person like the core members of the band. We went through a couple of bass players of the three bass players while I was in the band. Yeah. Um, and, uh, to a person, they were, you know, lovely people to travel with funny great guys like no weirdness it's just like that's, that's about all this, you can ask for how me. does this happen you know how does this happen um i'm going to attribute it to the fact that weirdly like the principals of the band like mike and scott and james kim the drummer all of their parents were still together <laughs> <laughs> just gonna say it you know uh, you know, no. uh, my well, parents, not, not for, it's like, and then in, you know, like in Chuck's band, you know, Stephanie's parents still together, you know, we're still together, you know, uh, we stayed married, Chuck's parents stayed married, you know, yeah. uh, yeah, that's not, you know, whatever you know, that, that's no. not, that's not an indicator that, uh, that you're, that there's not going to be dysfunction or something like that, but it was, no, like, no, but, you know. but there can be, you know, it is possible to have positive learned behaviors, Tom. <laughs> they're yeah. not they're not yeah. all self-destructive and then um, the thing and go to blazes all of our parents were together and you know we've, we 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 stayed you know we stayed friends you know we're still you know we're like we were friends before the band and we're still friends so that's all and you still talk to those guys oh yeah oh yeah that's fantastic that's uh yeah. do you still have some copies of that record left on of the of the and other crimes record yeah I think I think there's I'm looking at my shelf. There's five vinyl copies. Uh and I'm not clamoring to sell them necessarily. Um gotcha. I mean I would sell them. And I could probably get some more. Uh that you know, I was uh I'll just say, you know, like this is going out however it's going out. Um I, I thought that we made a really good I thought that the package came out really, really good. 
and um, I'm really disappointed that it came out the way it came out, which is that like it just kind of snuck out. Yeah. The label that put it out is the guy that used to run Glitter House, and it just there just was no push on it whatsoever. Nothing. He just like slipped it out. 500 copies signed. He knew he could sell them. Um, and you know, I, I wish that it had had a further reach than it did because it, 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 I thought more people needed to hear it. You know, it's a, re- a reissue that was, it didn't, it wasn't released. It escaped, you know? <laughs> wow. What a great place to leave yeah. it. Tom, yeah. this is, uh, this has been so much fun, man. I really, really want to thank you so much for your time, brother. Sure thing. Thanks for letting me uh, shoot my mouth. There he goes, Tom Heyman. Thank you so much to Tom for being on the show. What a great conversation. I had such a blast. Please make sure you go out on social media and you find him wherever you social your media and you let him know how much you appreciated him being on the show. We should be doing that for all of these guests. People are taking their time and their talent and they're sharing it with me and with you. And we need to make sure that we're showing some gratitude for that. So please go on out and find a way to let folks know when you enjoy them on the show. It makes a big difference and it increases the likelihood that we might get some new guests or get some of these great folks back. Don't forget, you can tell us about your 13 films. Send us an email at blog at gmail.com. You can also sign up for a paid subscription, which would make an enormous difference. Go to whatamimaking.substack.com, sign up for a monthly, yearly, or founding membership, and be sure that you're grabbing your tickets for our Robin Theater screening of My Life as a Dog on March 13th. Until then, I will be on the blog, on the radio, and on your mind. I love you, friends. I'll see you soon. <laughs>